So my guest this week is Gwen Shapira, long-term friend of the Oracle, big data and data integration communities, and now working as a product manager at Confluent, the people behind Kafka. So Gwen, thanks for coming on the show, and why don't you tell us a bit about what you do and how you got to here? Yeah, so right now, as I said, I'm product manager, and I take care of Confluent's data integration products, which are mostly Kafka Connect, so it's a way to get data in and out of Kafka and between databases. And uh, the Confluent Schema Registry, which is kind of a cool piece of technology that allows us to add structure and schema to data in Kafka, which is kind of a definition schema-less and therefore has the potential of being a huge headache. And I obviously got here by kind of a convoluted way. Like, I think um, my career has been defined by my inability to say no to things that sound interesting. Hence my <laughs> being on this uh, podcast. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I basically started uh, my career as a developer. And then when our D, uh, chief DBA quit, it sounded like a good opportunity to start, start something uh, cool. So I volunteered to take on the Oracle DBA position. And I did it for quite a while. So Oracle was really a really cool place to be for, I think, a good 10 years of my career. And then, you know, you kind of, I was in Oracle Consulting. I worked for PTN at the time, and you, you're a consultant, right? So you work with all those clients, and suddenly all they want to talk about is Hadoop, right? And uh, they're like, okay, they no longer want to move data between two Oracle systems. They all want to get data from the Oracle to Hadoop. And after client number five who is talking about, I want to move all my data from Oracle to Hadoop, you kind of get to thinking, if this is actually all everything they're doing, will I still have a job doing Oracle in five or ten years because it's all to Hadoop? So after the fifth client or so, I started talking to Cladera about, hey, can I do this Hadoop thing? And that's the nice thing about consulting. And in general, I think in big data, the skills are super transferable. Like if you are really good at your fundamentals, like you know how to look at what a program is doing, instrument it, and dig into, is it using disk, is it using CPU, is the network slow? You can kind of do pretty much anything. So I ended up doing pretty much what I did for Oracle, which is why is my ETL process so slow. I started doing the exact same thing for Hadoop. So suddenly here I am learning a new technology that just so I can let, uh, help my client uh, start using it. And after a few of those, I became the Kafka person at Cloudera, but Cloudera wasn't that interested in doing Kafka at the time. I think, personally, I think they're still not, like it's not something official, but it just doesn't seem like an area they're hugely invested in. And it's kind of, you know, slightly depressing to be doing a sideshow for a big company, or even a medium-sized company, for that matter. So when I noticed that the, all the Kafka people were kind of coalescing around this one company, I was um, very interested in talking to them, basically. So that's kind of here I am. And actually, I joined their company as an engineer, uh, but then they said that, hey, we don't really have any product people, and our investors say we need product people, so can you do product? And I'm like, I have no idea what we're, I'm doing. <laughs> okay, like, hey, we're pretty sure that nobody in product knows what they're doing. Uh, so I'm still learning that, and I think Fantastic. that's the cool part about a career, right? That you can kind of 
keep learning and reuse re your skills in different ways. Exactly. I've always thought you've always been the person who's had a job that's one one bit one bit cooler than me, actually. So when I was working, when I was learning kind of big data, you were working at Cloud Era, um, and then when I kind of uh, when I got into when I got into big data more so, you were working as a product manager, and and I think you, you've always had I think you've always kind of blazed quite a trail really when it comes to the companies you work for and the technologies that you uh, that you kind of like you know specialize in. But particularly, I think particularly data integration and ETL has been an area that you've um, done a lot of things with. And as a confession, I would say that probably a lot of the uh, lot of the good ideas that I've had in the past around this sort of area have come from things that you've presented on, particularly, I suppose, around the way that you kind of lay out maybe, you know, in the old days of HTFS, the way you'd lay out a kind of file system and the way you kind of, I suppose, the governance around it as well. And I mean, what, what again, what particularly interested you in the data integration side of things, really? Actually, the funniest thing is that I never actually did data integration, and I wasn't even that interested in it. Except I worked as a, I started my career as a DBA, right? Yeah. And ninety percent of the problems I had to deal with as a DBA mm. could be summed up as why is my ETL so slow? Yes. Why is it not finishing on time? Or mm. it was fast yesterday, but it's slow today. Or it's only slow on Sundays uh, or Mondays when it rains. Like it's it, it can get ETLs can are large processes. It can get convoluted and. Uh, they're usually a source of performance pain for customers. So pretty much I just hanged out around ETL people a lot, I guess, and try to make things faster. Uh, so that's kind of how I find myself. And, you know, it's and obviously in Oracle and traditional ETL speed and resource usages and how it interacts with other parts of the system was a huge pain point. But then when I started moving to Hadoop, Speed was never the pain point. I mean, it was ETL was fast. Pain was usually after the ETL process finished. And okay, now you have a bunch of basically bytes on the file system. And it's not like Oracle, right? After the ETL process finishes in Oracle, you have nice tables and partitions and that in there. In Hadoop, you don't really get that. You get, um, if you're lucky, you get Hive tables, but that's about it. Uh, so a lot of the pain I had to solve for my customers is actually things that were super, super obvious back in Oracle, you know, like, how do we know what data types do we have? Should everything really be a string? Hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, let's, let, as a lead in, I think to 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 talking about Kafka, which is obviously the the area that you you specialize in now. Let, let's kind of think about how I suppose ETL has changed um, over the last few years as we've gone more towards things like streaming. We've used kind of I suppose a much wider set of tools and and so on. There. I mean, you you talked again looking back at presentations you've written in the past. You talked about there being kind of patterns and anti patterns and different kind of tools and so on people would use. If you were, if you were assessing or or thinking about ETL for customers or reviewing a system, you know, what, what typically would you kind of th see there in terms of approaches that they would have there and, and how, how, how are people starting to adopt, I suppose, things like streaming processing and so on? What's the kind of patterns you see there? Yeah, it's fascinating because that is an area that changes a lot over time and actually the evolution of the area is something that I'm super interested in right now. Because, you know, I work in the Silicon Valley and actually a lot of Confluence customers are kind of cool Silicon Valley companies and you see things that are a lot different. And sometimes Silicon Valley is a trend center. So I kind of try to see it as, does it predict something for the rest of the world? Because often it does, right? And if I have to say, was ETL in the Silicon Valley right now? I would say that it's no longer ETL as I would recognize it. 
it's uh, software engineers using data in their applications is, is the way I would characterize it, right? And last week, or you talked to uh, the Airbnb guy, and he's not calling himself an ETA person, right? He's a software engineer who happened to be building data stuff. Uh, there is a very good book by uh, your fellow Englishman, Martin Kleppmann, about data-intensive applications. And it talks about applications that use data in super broad, super generic terms, and it goes over a lot of patterns just around applications that use data a lot. And obviously, large part of it is what we would call ETL, but for him, it's, he was building search for uh, LinkedIn. And if you're building search for LinkedIn, yes, it is an, I would call it an ETL because you're getting data out of uh, Kafka and maybe out of some databases, and you need to land it in um, Elasticsearch, where you run searches in all kinds of specific indexes. So to me, it looks a lot like an ETL. But he would never call himself an ETL engineer or ETL specialist, right? He would call himself a software engineer. And this kind of changes everything. Because if you're a software engineer, you don't really use point-and-click tools anymore, right? So it's been, let me think, five years since I've last seen anyone actually do the whole Informatica thing or data stage thing. Um, because like you see everything as a software problem. You just you need tools, but you your ba your native environment is writing code to solve problems. And if something like Informatica wouldn't doesn't really let you do that in a convenient way, you know, it doesn't integrate with your GitHub and Jenkins and all I mean Software engineers have their environments that they're productive in. Yeah, when I started, uh, moved from being an DBA to do more of engineering work, the first thing that my colleagues told me is you need to set up your development environment. And you turn out that it's like, okay, how do I get a copy of the code into my machine? How do I edit it in my editor? How do I make a small change? How do I run the tests? And how do I get it back into the correct release? which is kind of a cycle that basically engineers keep working around, right? Developing, testing, integrating, deploying. It's an interesting point. It's, I mean, yeah, sorry to interrupt you there. I mean, it, it's, it's, I, mean I, I, find, I had the conversation with, with Maxime last week, and um, I mean, certainly working now within a product area in a big data company, building kind of software products, as you say, nobody, nobody will be seen you know, using a tool like Informatica or, or anything really like that. I mean, there are tools like, say, stream sets that I think have tried, you're probably aware of that have tried to take that point-and-click approach and, and update it, I suppose, for the kind of cloud era world and so on. I mean, do you, do you think, though, that this, this you, I mean, you know, we've, you, you and I both worked in, in, in kind of database environments and DBA environments where there used to be kind of hand scripting of, of ETL routines. And, and DBAs would say, I'm much more productive using scripts rather than using kind of ETL tools. But, you know, the tool, ETL tools are brought in to, I suppose, broaden the kind of the set of people that can do this kind of work and to add a degree of kind of, I suppose, kind of standardization and governance to it. Do you think what you're seeing now in, in, in the industry or in Silicon Valley is just a kind of uh, the maturity of the people doing it or it's a fundamental change in how this kind of work is done? Yeah, the work still seems a lot the same. Um at least in some senses, I think that uh, part of the struggle is around the main differences between structured and unstructured data, right? Uh, I mean, that's something that has been like, when Informatica was written and data search was written, everything was structured. You move data between one relational database and another. 
and now you have all those logs and JSONs and uh, all kinds of just more systems, more types of data to integrate with. And the other difference is that sometimes it's not even a database on either side of the ETL. So uh, we do work a lot with uh, change capture uh, scenarios now because just uh, apparently Kafka plus something like DBVisit is pe pretty popular. Uh, so obviously DBVisit is getting data out of Oracle and put it into Kafka and then the consumers of the data in Kafka don't necessarily write it anywhere. Sometimes it's just an application that wants to get an update whenever something happens on the database. So you have um, you know, all those microservices, and one of the microservices is responsible for sending congratulations, your account has been opened, email on, uh, for a bank, and they want this um, application to get notified by whenever the account creation entry shows up in their DB2. Uh, so that's kind of a classic change that a capture use case, except that there is no database at the other end of it. So the integration of, I guess, ETL and app building and kind of merging the two uh, worlds is something that's fairly new and, in my opinion, really fascinating. Okay, okay. So, so that leads on quite nicely to, I suppose, kind of Kafka and streaming and so on. So you, you talk quite a lot about streaming pipelines and, and how this is kind of how things are done now in this world. So for anybody listening to this podcast who is, I suppose, still working with tools like Data Integrator and ODI and so on, what fundamentally is different about, say, streaming pipelines and the way that that kind of integration works within the kind of big data world? Okay, so I'm, I'll warn you, I don't know that much about ODI. But, okay, well, uh, any tool, any tool. So any tool that is batch and graphical, you know, it's a quite different paradigm, isn't it, to doing things streaming? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So graphical is not the big change. I mean, it's um, almost a side effect of stuff being done by developers versus um, the ETL specialist. But really, the big change is moving from batch to streaming. And you can see it in the conversations we're having because we started out, like my first streaming tool was uh, Spark Streaming. And that was like, they had these micro batches. And we thought that micro batches are good enough. For the longest time, I thought that micro batches are good enough. Uh, but then we pretty much as a community discovered that even though, like, even I don't care that much about latency, you know, like, you know, one second or 100 milliseconds is often fine. But I care about the flexibility of my data windows. So if you work with micro batches, it also kind of fits how you do aggregates. Now you're limiting, slicing your aggregates to specific uh, points. And it, uh, it affects your ability to handle things like late events, which are obviously if you do real-time data, you can't just say, oh, let's rerun yesterday's batch and redo it because we just got a bunch of events. Think streaming is all about being continuous, right? And I think people call it unbounded data sometimes. Like it's not batch and streaming, it's bounded and unbounded. And batch has those very clear boundaries and streams basically always work, is always on. So you need to start worrying about how do I handle errors in a world that is always on? How do I handle late events? How do I make updates? And those are pretty hard problems. I think the entire field is still uh, kind of struggling with exactly what are the correct answers. I talked to a super smart guy from one of those uh, streaming uh, radio uh, apps, uh, which is 
pretty popular. A lot of people use it, so they definitely have big data. And they said that they moved to uh, to use Google Dataflow recently, which is one of the more advanced uh, stream processing out there. Yeah, I think um, that a lot of the field, get, it's a field that uh, advances in many directions and everyone exchanges their new ideas, but uh, we've definitely been inspired by some of their work and vice versa. They've been definitely inspired by some of our work. Um, and you can see, and so this guy from Spotify uh, is telling me that they're using it, but they're mostly using it in batch mode because it's a bit uh, scary for them to move to streams. So they still haven't figured out how to do everything they used to do in this streams world and things like error handling and reprocessing of data was definitely like one of the things that is still kind of, they're still trying to get used to it. They're trying it on maybe some non-critical data load. And so if some of the smartest people out there are still trying to figure it out, I think that's kind of the cost of being out front. Yeah, exactly. So what was this? I mean, so in terms of Kafka and Confluent then, you know, what, what was the story of Kafka um, and how did Confluent, how are Confluent involved in that? And what was, I suppose, really what's interesting is what was the, what was the, what was the innovation really with Kafka that made it a better solution to say, you know, to say Spark Streaming? You mentioned it's, it's continuous versus micro batch and so on. But what was the thing, what was the thing, the breakthrough thing with Kafka that made it kind of very popular, do you think? Yeah, that's funny because Kafka was written as a message, message bus. And as a message bus is something that me as a DBA almost never saw, right? It's plural app developers. It's something that Tipu did. It's not something that I've ever really seen myself. And it started out basically as a smarter, more scalable message bus. And the way they decided to scale, so turns out that normal message buses basically are very aware of who is supposed to consume every message. And the message will be stored often in memory until every single consumer consumed it. And if you ever used Oracle Advanced Queues, which everyone who used Oracle Streams uh, happened to use, uh, then that's exactly how Oracle Advanced Queues would work, right? It will never delete data until everyone consumed it. And that causes a lot of issues around scale, because if you try to scale to a lot of consumers, then suddenly this whole thing starts falling apart. And LinkedIn had uh, something like over 10,000 consumers at some point. So Kafka was basically built to deal with that. And the way they decided to deal with that is to say, we are going to keep data for four days or seven days, which is enough for even our worst behaving consumer, and just delete it afterwards. And we're not going to bother keeping track of the consumers. And turns out that this simplifying principle uh, basically allowed for pretty big scale. And they kept on simplifying. They simplified the data structure, like, oh, just this, Right ahead log is actually enough to maintain a queue, so let's just deal with this uh, bunch of uh, partitioned right ahead logs, basically like an Oracle redo log without a database. Um, and the, so and there are a lot of like smart data engineering uh, tricks for scale, like zero copy memory, and a lot of cool things we like talk, to talk about. But at the base, it was all about simplifying. How, how simple can we make a system and it will still behave like uh, publish subscribe queues that we need? And it turns out that you can simplify quite a lot. And at that point, they started calling those uh, logs of event, what we would call a riddle log, they called it a stream of event because that's just the way these people looked at it. So if you looked at the very, very old uh, Kafka consumer, you can uh, basically define how many threads the consumer has and, and they call it streams. 
because it's like stre streams of data that the consumer gets. And, yeah, and that was way before stream processing was even a thing. That's the funny part of it. Uh, when LinkedIn started having uh, use cases for real-time processing and real-time updates and that kind of thing, it was very natural to build it on top of the data already in Kafka because so many of the data they needed, they, all, they basically built a lot of the integration between their services via Kafka. So when they looked to see where can we have data for those uh, streams of events, well, they had the data in the database, but getting data out of the database in a real-time manner, as you know, is not always something DBAs look at kindly. They worry a lot about performance implications and how it will be done. Uh, so, the, and then in Kafka, data was already there, and the, as you know, Kafka didn't care about having additional consumers, that's what it was written for. So the Kafka means were like, oh, go ahead, just connect to this uh, stream of events and get whatever you need. So it was just very natural, and that's when LinkedIn started writing the system called SAMSA, uh, which is still one of the coolest systems out there because it combines um, basically event-level stream processing, which is very fast and very scalable, with localized caches for the data, which allows you to do more advanced things like uh, aggregation and joins of data between streams or even... Uh, so they had this idea of actually building materialized views in this uh, local cache, which is uh, absolutely brilliant. So suppose you have streams of clicks or something, and you want to join it with something like uh, profiles. And you know that the profile table is not that large, so you say, okay, no problems, I'll make it fast. Instead of every time I get a clickstream event, which is very often, and go and ask Oracle, which will make everyone mad, I'll just read this profile table once, I'll have it in cache, and I'll start doing my joins locally which is something that it's slightly controversial, right? Because doing joins in the application is something that a lot of times we say, hey, why are you doing that? The database can do it a lot better, but it doesn't necessarily want to do it a million times a second. Uh, so you build this application that will do this join for you. And then um, you say, well, but what if someone updates the profile table? And then you have say, okay, I'll just do change data capture. I'll create a stream of events out of this tab profile table. Every time someone does an insert or an update, I will get this as an event. And now it's just a matter of basically creating a materialized view of those events, but instead of in another Oracle or even the same Oracle, in my local cache. Or in the case of Samza, it was using RocksDB, which is a pretty nice in-memory database from uh, LinkedIn. Sorry, not LinkedIn, Facebook. <laughs> so, they, so they built this system, and it turned out to work really, really well. And when you started the Confluent, we actually wanted the system. And that was not a problem, except that it was built to run on Yarn. And Yarn is really hard to manage. And remember that the entire philosophy of Kafka is mini minimizing, stripping away the stuff you don't need. So we decided that we don't really need to yarn, run it on Yarn. We could just write it as a library, run the stream processing as a library in the application. We are running application, writing applications and deploying them anyway. And we can kind of make the whole thing simpler. So that's kind of like the way the stream processing evolved into wow. what we're doing now, Confluent. 
Okay, so the, what's the what's the business model behind Confluent then? Because was, was Confluent a spin-off from from LinkedIn? I mean, I, don't know, I mean, I know there's obviously they employ you as a product manager. They have a kind of a commercial offering and so on. What what's the kind of commercial kind of I suppose model behind what you're doing? Yeah, so we do, we do something that's pretty common to open source companies. We have the open source core, which is libraries and connectors, and the cafe itself. And then we say that there is a lot of added value that is specific to enterprise. So, for example, security or some aspects of security integration with um, the Active Directory is something that pretty much only enterprise companies would really be interested, right? If you're a startup, you don't do Active Directory. But if you're a bigger company, you care about it. And then stuff like management tools and graphical monitoring and click here to create topics and all that kind of stuff is things that are kind of added value. You can definitely live without them. You can do it yourself, and most startups actually do it themselves. But we feel that if, in order, if you're a bank and you want to save some time, it's uh, good to just pay someone who knows what they're doing. Okay, okay, that's interesting. So, so let, okay, so that, that, that's a good introduction, I think, to kind of Kafka and, and streaming and so on. So, I mean, around that topic, I mean, you, you, you present quite a lot, you talk quite a lot about this topic and, and, and ETL and so on. And so I prepared a list of things you've said on Twitter um, over the last few months <laughs> that, uh, that I want you to go through and explain what you mean, actually, uh, with them. So, uh, it's, yeah. so, so, um, so you talked, so starting off, then, you talked about no, no ETL and, and, and you were coining a phrase there around no ETL and, and I suppose how things have changed. I mean, again, what, what was the thinking behind that, really? And what, 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 again, what, what changes are you seeing happening and what point were you trying to make with that, really? Yeah, so actually, I didn't invent the term. I think I heard it at Scala, by the way, like a year or two ago. And I'm not even 100% sure what they meant at the time. But for me, it's just the experience of um, looking around and seeing that most companies do not have the ETL person or no. the ETL tools anymore. No, that's they right. Those data applications that happen to integrate with each other. Yeah, so. yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think I think you know, I was talking to the people at another big company we both used to work with before, and and about I suppose how ETL is changing for that long tail of customers as well. And one, do you think that ETL is changing? completely or it's or it's just kind of taking on a new kind of guys within the kind of world that we work in because there's still companies out there that are integrating kind of old database systems and, and transaction systems and so on do you think ETL is changing for them or it's just the kind of like the world that we're in now really uh, in a sense I hope that ETL is changing because for the 10 years I've been doing it, it just had more and more problems and I almost blame the ETL pains for Hadoop, you know, because, uh, yeah, you know, it was so painful. A lot of, first of all, data warehouses were very painful, right? Like the modeling exercise and the conforming dimensions. And then the pain trickled into the ETL, right? Because that was the process that was supposed to do it. And then loading data into very large data warehouses was always kind of an exercise you know how much Oracle talks about it. It just was super painful. And then when someone said, oh, you don't really need to do all that, here is some disks, just start dumping data, and it will be very fast because you don't do anything, and you don't need to conform the benches and stuff, everyone just jumped on it. And three years later, they're looking at it and they're like, okay, but what do we do with all this crap? <laughs> and, you know, who knows? And But now, suddenly, ETL is not painful because it barely exists anymore. You just dump data on those disks. And ETL 
tools are no longer that useful. And on the other hand, you have all those bytes on disks. You kind of need an engineer to write MapReduce jobs or Spark jobs or whatever to make sense of this, right? So I think that's basically the... I don't really know. I have proof of that, but that's my theory of the change we're seeing. So ETL became less painful but less useful, but the job of getting data from a database to somewhere else where that needs the data is still a job that exists. It's just because the, the whole tools and um, it suddenly be stopped being done at one place in the process but moved to one place and the whole you know, schema on write uh, versus schema on read thing. It just, uh, it seems to have moved to a different part of the organization. So yeah, it's not dead, not even close, but it's just being done very, very differently now. So uh, what I'd like to do is, is, is get on a bit later on, just before the end of the call, to talk about things like um, uh, data governance and schema, because I know that's an area you've been looking at recently, but because um, that's I think that's quite relating to what you're talking about there. But one other thing you've been talking about recently on Twitter is architects and architectures. Um, and I think in particular, it was to do with the kind of microservices presentation you saw and, and so on, really. You know, if, if you come across an architect uh, on a customer site or you're asked to talk about architecture, what, what kind of things do you like about that and what don't you like about it? What's the, what's the problem with architects, do you think? <laughs> it depends a lot on the architects, right? Yeah. But I think the field tends to be... It's, a lot of times it's just engineers who no longer write code yeah. or not that much. I'll quote you, I'll quote you, I'll quote you on here. You said, we need architecture discussions to be informed by data, especially around operability metrics. And the one was, it feels like this is the age of architects refusing to make the hard decisions they're being paid to make. So obviously, obviously you make your point there, but what, what, what's, the, what's the underlying issue there? And what do you think is the way things are going that we could do things better, really? Yeah, so architects are usually not the people who actually build the systems and not the people who run it in production. So... So a lot of times I feel like they, their incentives are sometimes just slightly misaligned. And so I'm thinking a lot about how they're misaligned and how to fix this. And part of it is that you see it a lot these days. You go to those talks about from startups showing off their architecture. And it's just a huge mishmash of a lot of technology. So obviously you have all those microservices. And every one of them you will have its own database. And which is every one of them will be a different type of database because they care very much about, you know, best tool for the job. And that's very defensible. So I can see why it wouldn't get an architect fired because you can explain that you are making the best decisions and microservices or those best practices. But when you take it to production, like how many people can actually operate well 15 different databases? It's, in my opinion, it's not going to happen. So the two parts of it is that so there has to be a relationship between the architects and ops. Like if it's, the system is super difficult to operate. If there's too many databases, too many applications, nobody can understand like an application went down, what is the impact of it? If no one in the organization can actually answer that, in my opinion, the architect didn't do a very good job at that. People need to, the system has to be maintainable and understandable. And the other part is that because uh, architects sometimes pretend that there is no cost to running the system, they, the trade-off between do we pick a good dat database for this problem or do we use 
a slightly not as awesome database, but that we're already very familiar with, they will always take the cool database. Even if I don't talk about the resume-driven development, they will always pick the cool database because they don't see the cost of adding the cool database. They only see the benefits. Uh, so, and I think that if an architect is not making this trade-off call, is this new complexity actually worth it, then he's not doing what an architect is supposed to do, which is consider those hard trade-offs. So that's kind of where I was coming from. I feel like, and I, a lot of architects are actually ex-operations people, in which case they do see the complexity, but you just run into a lot of people who haven't done the job in many years, and you can see how far removed they are from the realities. I suppose in a way that comes back to what you said earlier on about doing things simple, you know, the, the Kafka and the Confluence sort of approaches to do it simply, really. Yeah, you know, I'm now in Denmark, right? And yes. Here, they're very much into the Scandinavian minimalism, and it kind of affects you. You it need does. to think of your architecture as this bare white room, and you pick furniture with a lot of care, and you don't want to overstuff it with things. Yes, the place you're staying, actually, I remember being there before, and it had no furniture, so that was taken to a <laughs> uh, taken to an extreme, actually. So, 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 so that so, in one respect, you're saying you know don't overcomplicate things, but also I suppose it's important to do some things correctly, and and I think data. Governance is an area that, that is, in my opinion, Hadoop and big data and NoSQL has had a bit of a kind of free pass really over the last few years. You know, do, do you think that data governance will become more important for the work we're doing in this area? Do you think there's kind of like, you know, do you think there's enough, enough emphasis put in now or, or what really? You know, I've been unable to have a conversation with a customer about anything else for several months now. And so I come with it like I have this schema registry and I tell them about, hey, we allow you to manage all those schemas and you can reject bad data before it makes it to the system. And this resonates with people, right? Like not compatibility and compli- data compliance is only part of the story around them. A governance. But that's a pain point. Like nobody wants Kafka to turn into what Hadoop became, which is kind of unorganized dump of data that people have trouble making sense of. So we people take a lot more care of the data going in and out, and the schema registry is kind of helpful for them. Uh, but then they really want us to do a lot more. They keep asking us, can we also uh, track who is using the data? Can we track what is they using it for? Can we have rules around what data is allowed for which use cases? Because apparently... In Europe, they have very strict rules about privacy. And if you have private data, you can use it for some things, but not other things. Uh, so they need to have very good tracking around that. And then apparently also found out by talking to people in the EU, they, have, they are doing a lot of work automating how loans are approved. But if you reject someone's loan, and you can just go to court and say it's the algorithm, like we do in the States. You actually have to have very good explanation of what data was used to make the decision and how it was made and who touched the data and so on. So every piece of data that may be used to make those big financial decisions have to have very, very good tracking on it. And that's something that I don't know if it was really solved, right? Because if we, what we have is big data, but you also have to cache all those metadata of who touched it and where was it created, what was it used for. We are basically talking about taking big data and making it maybe 10 times bigger. Uh, So it's not something that's super trivial and easy. I mean, yeah, if you use Kafka for small problems, that's not a big deal. And a lot of people are using Kafka for a small problem. 
and they use new features like headers to basically keep tracking lineage and things. But um, that only goes up to a point. And if you start doing something crazy like, hey, I'll use the clickstream data to learn about a person and then make long decisions based on that, uh, you will no longer be able to really do it because there's just too many clicks to track governance for all of those. Okay. So, okay. yeah. Okay, so you mentioned Schema Registry. It's a product that you're kind of product managing. So tell us about that. And, and I suppose, how are, you, how are you managing to do what you just talked about without getting bogged down in the same kind of like, um, I suppose, kind of uh, friction and, 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 and um, whatever that you get from doing that in the data warehousing world? How, how can you do that? <laughs> to tell you that I don't think you can get away from this kind of friction. Like I, We always we have this internal discussion at Confluence always whether the schema registry is uh, vitamins or sweets. Like, is it something that our customers want and ask for or is it a, a bitter pill that we force them into uh, swallowing? And for, I mean, when I talk to data architects and people doing governance, then definitely it's a sweet. They want it. They, want, they know that uh, bad events in the system can cause havoc, especially since data sticks around for a long time. And basically, schema registry allows you to declare this is the schema that this topic is going to have. And every message that the producer sends will get validated against the schema. You can still make changes, but they have to make changes. So if you add the column and default, then it's not everyone will still be able to read and write data. Uh, but if someone just changes a string into a number, then that's not going to be compatible. And the rule is that the person causing the problems have to feel the most pain. So basically, if you uh, send an incompatible schema, your code will get um, the error message, and you will not be able to produce it. So everyone who is reading from the topic will be able to count on the fact that the topic 100% data that they will be able to use, which is super important. And on the other hand, the people who write the data are not very happy about it. They're usually, a lot of the pain we deal with is uh, people trying to basically game the system. Oh, we have this incompatible change, but uh, actually nobody will care because there are no consumers on the topic. And then, uh, and then we, so we decided to disable the, the schema check and just write it. And then obviously there was consumers on the topic. There always are, right? Or even if there is not now, two months later, someone says, oh, I know, I'll write all this data into Hadoop and we'll build this hive table and run queries. And then your bad data goes back and bites you. So there's always, always something. And the way we're trying to get better at that, uh, that's something that I actually learned from my own customers. They basically told me that we can no longer, f we, are, we, as in the architects and the governance people, we can no longer force software engineers to do anything. We can convince them, but they'll do whatever they want. Uh, so you need to build tools that those engineers will want to use. There is absolutely no choice about it. Whatever tool you build for the schema registry has to work very well for those engineers. So instead of just stopping bad data in operations at production time, we basically built a tool that will do all those validations in advance. So you can run it on your own machine, like Maven or Gradle for that matter. Uh, or you can uh, build it into your nightly tests or into a continuous integration system. So have your Jenkins run it whenever someone tries to merge a patch. Uh, so catching things earlier in the development process has been advantageous. On the other hand, you can do it too early in the development process because otherwise you, they will let you that you don't let them move fast and break things. So it's kind of a delicate balance. You have to be careful there. Uh, but uh, basically that's, uh, that's 
how we're trying to help with the problem. Okay, um, okay, fantastic. And I noticed one last thing just to mention. I noticed that there was some stuff that you've been talking about and Confluence around, around exactly once processing as well. And I know I know what that concept is, but just maybe explain what that means in the context of, of Kafka and, and, and this conversation as well. Yeah, that, it actually means two separate things. Both mm. of them are really cool. So for the longest time, uh, if you produced an event for Kafka and Kafka, for any reason, neglected to acknowledge the event, it was written to Kafka, but it wasn't acknowledged, a producer would retry. And now Kafka would have the event twice. Uh, for some use cases, it was kind of annoying. And how do we remove duplicates? And it was kind of painful. So the first thing we added was what we call an idempotent producer, uh, which basically adds a sequence of numbers to all the messages you send. So if the broker receives the same message twice, it will just uh, say, oh, I already got this one and throw it away. That's the simplest part. The second part we backed in is what we call transactions, but is obviously the term transactions can mean a lot of things, but it allows you to do a begin transaction, produce to a lot of different topics or partitions or whatever, and then either abort, which means that none of it, everything you just wrote is going to get ignored, or commit, in which case it will be persisted. And consumers can decide if they want to enable dirty reads or they want to do read committed. And that's a pretty big deal, right? Because now you can actually have data in common between uh, different topics and uh, know that either it's all there or none of it is there. And it's especially useful for stream processing because it means that you can consume an event, process it, write the result, and at the exact same Successfully. And either the result, the fact that the event was rewritten at the same time, it will be written, which if someone is retrying, he will retry the processing of the event because the result is not there and the fact that it has been processed is not there. So for us, this, this is huge, right? It just allows us to have much more reliable uh, streams of events. It allows us to do very reliable aggregates because that's where really gets you. If you start uh, summing things up and you sum duplicates, it's almost impossible <laughs> to, to actually get the correct number out of that. So we, we have a uh, high hopes that uh, exactly once we'll uh, make our stream processing a lot more reliable for kind of those critical, highly accurate use cases. Fantastic. Well, let, I'll let you go now because I know you're presenting at a meetup in Copenhagen um, later on today. So, um, yes. but that's, that's, it's been great to speak to you. Um, I'll see you tomorrow actually because I'll be over there as well speaking at an event with you. Um, so, but um, yeah, thanks very much for coming on the show and uh, have a good time in Copenhagen. I know I've taken you away for an hour now, but. Um, but thanks so much for coming yeah, on the show. See you and it's been great speaking to you. Okay, take care, Gwen. Bye bye.